My name is Peter Kim. For those who I have not had the privilege of meeting, um, get to serve here as one of the pastors. And we at Seven Mile Road have had a time, a season where we have been studying, but also being shaped by how God works redemption. What has he done? How has he purposed it? We've come to find together as a community that he has great intention with specificity and purposefulness, a heart for little ones, little ones that have been unexpected, little ones that are down for the count, little ones that have uh, been raised or come about in situations that we would say are dire and desperate. We've come to find that our God's heart is for specifically those little ones. He loves to work in their stories, to purpose their lives for bigger and greater things, all so that redemption, restoration, and healing might find their way in them and in this world. You see, we're trying as a community to have this sort of heart, God's heart, for little ones, for their families, for the systems and structures that support them. And so we've studied individuals like Isaac, Moses, Jeremiah, and today we get to dive into the study of the person of John the Baptist. And I've been trying my best to, to contain my excitement. I love John the Baptist. And uh, our staff will tell you that as we were studying the text earlier this week, I, it was just hard for me to figure out how in the world, in a handful of minutes, am I going to talk about this? An individual who I love and admire, a text that I so deeply cherish. But we're going to try, and so bear with me here this morning. So if you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me, let's, let's pray before we we kick off. So our Father, we come to you today, and I'm longing that we would get to just see your heart, to feel the way that it beats, particularly for little ones, and even specifically this morning for us, wherever we may be seated, whatever it is that we're bringing in today, God, I pray that what we would come to find is that you are a God who is high and holy marvelous and mighty, and at the very same time, you are near. God, I pray that you would speak a very specific word to the men and the women in this room. God, we need it. We need you to speak today. And so I pray that in spite of me, you would do it. By your word, by your power, we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As a pastor, I have a unique opportunity I get to officiate lots of wedding ceremonies. It is one of the things I love to do most. And uh, there's actually a handful of couples I can see in the room that I've gotten to do weddings for. And one of the earliest ones I got to do was actually for two of my closest friends, Kevin and Kami McKean, were sitting in the back over there. And believe you me, I was so nervous. <laughs> it was like my second ceremony ever, and the first one was not great. And so this one, you know, these people I care about, um, I just remembered thinking about that day and my hands starting to shake. And one of the best pieces of advice I was given then that I'm eager to pass along now to anyone and everyone that has the, the privilege to be in the middle of that sacred space, to have front row seats of seeing somebody become man and wife, I tell them what I was told, guess what? It's not about you. No one's here for you. You'll be lucky if you're in any of the pictures. Like, no one's here to look at you. No one's here to hear you. They're really here for the couple that you get to be right there alongside on a sacred and beautiful journey. It's not about you. I needed to hear that then. I needed to rehearse it a thousand times over myself. No one's here for me. Nobody cares. 
I just get to have front row seats to this really sacred moment. And so this morning, we're going to go on a similar journey together. I'm going to do my very best to convince you that this story we're all living in, it's actually not about you. You are not the star of the show. We as a community are trying in this season to remember who it's all about. And as we do this morning, remember who this is all for, I think we'll get a clearer picture of then who we are in light of him, in light of Jesus. And this morning, I need, I need to usher this particular invitation. If you are here this morning because of Jesus, because you love him, because you've experienced his love, I have something very specific to tell you. You have a role to play in his story. You have a role to play. And per this text, we'll come to find that, that it's an important one, and yet nobody's really here for you. Let's grapple with that together. Look in the text with me in, in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. Luke 1, verse 5 reads this. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lots to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Okay, some context here this morning. Where we find ourselves today is that if you were to look into your Bibles, this is the first chapter of a gospel account. If you were to flip back, pass through Matthew, you come to find that the last time that God had spoken to his people was in Malachi chapter 4. In Malachi chapter 4, at the very end of it, he, God makes a promise. I'm going to send somebody, I'm going to send Elijah the great prophet, and on that great and marvelous day, I will be a God who remembers you, who seeks you out, who saves you. Malachi 4 to Luke chapter 1, there have been 400 years of silence in between. 400 years of silence. Think about that with me for a second. 400 years, your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, and on and on, generation after generation, God has not spoken particularly, specifically to his people. Generational subjugation. The promises God had given to his people of, I'm going to make you a beacon of hope, a nation, a crown above all for all the peoples to see and say, God is with them. That has not happened. Kingdoms have risen and fallen. Empires have come and have gone. And the people of God are still in the midst of political, spiritual unrest. And as we zoom into the text, as we zoom into the context, we come to find that the people are, are still praying, though. They're still coming day by day to the, to the, to the evening and the morning prayers that when the burning of incense happens. The priests, they're still doing their duties in the temple. The temple doesn't look like it used to. It doesn't feel like it used to. And yet the people are still coming. They're still hoping a little bit. And as we zoom in farther, further, excuse me, we see that there is a particular spotlight on Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. Now, I have to tell you what, what's written between the lines here is that this is a priestly match made in heaven. 
Like I'm talking, here is Zechariah of the priestly line, and here is Elizabeth, a descendant of Aaron, the priest who started it all. This is like a two pastor's kids, and not the rebellious sort, like the, like the really good kind. The ones that always like, did the right thing, were early to everything. They are considered like, oh, I wish my kids were like those kids, type of kids. Match made in heaven. They are considered law-abiding. They love God's word. They are blameless. Righteous and blameless is a a dual moniker that is rarely used in the scriptures, talked about for for a few handful of folks. And here are Zechariah and Elizabeth, two pastor's kids, match made in heaven, right? This is them, blameless and righteous. And yet we see a, a glaring stain on their resume. They're childless. Now, in this day and age, what that would mean, particularly for Elizabeth, is every time that Zachary and Elizabeth go to market, when they go to the temple or to their synagogue, people would say hi, they would do their formalities of nice greetings, and then they'd whisper to each other, yeah, but, but you know that God has judged them severely. No kids. Barren. That that would be the muttering that happens the moment that they're out of earshot every single time. It would induce a lot of shame and humiliation This is what it feels a little bit like to step into their shoes. They've done everything right by the book. They've prayed every evening and every morning because that's what good pastor's kids do. They got married. They were a match made in heaven. And when they tried to finally grow a family because every other family is like, I can't wait to see what your kids are like. Godly, holy, set apart. They can't have any. Do you feel the churn that would happen in this moment? particularly for Zechariah, this is not your business-as-usual sort of week for him. He has been chosen by lot to go into the temple for a week, evening and morning, step into the Holy of Holies, the place that God's presence is supposed to dwell. He's of the division of Abijah. Do you know what that means? There's 24 divisions, roughly 18,000-plus priests. There's way too many priests for the, for the small number of things that need to happen week to week. So each section, each division, gets two weeks in the total year to do this temple work. So of 18,000 priests and 24 divisions, you get your one or two weeks a year, and by lot, you might, in a lifetime of being a priest, get to do what Zachariah gets to do here. Go into the Holy of Holies. Burn the prayer of incense. Sacrifice an animal. Go out to the people who are waiting there for the benediction. Bless them. Pray for the nation. This is the highlight of Zechariah's priestly career. This is it. This is the moment. The moment he's been waiting for that he might never have gotten to do ever once. Priests live and die and don't get this opportunity. Zechariah is here right now. And there is a great chasm for him between what he expected his reality to feel like and, and what it actually is. There is a glaring hole, a a huge chasm between all of his expectations for his life. He married the right person. He did all the right things, and yet he is childless, deemed judged by God. And he goes into the temple on the one time in a lifetime that he might get this chance. And he's bringing in a lot of baggage in this moment. A lot of hardenedness of heart. Because his expectations were here, and his reality is here. It's a sort of chasm that you may have experienced, maybe you're experiencing right now. 
that because of your circumstances, because of the ways that you had hoped for things, lived for things, tried hard for things, and yet right now when you go home later this evening, you're going to begin to cry in ways that you didn't know you would cry. Spontaneously, uncontrollably, the sort of crying where you're looking at the person sitting across the table from you and you can't explain why you're crying again and yet you are. Or the sort of anger you have about your circumstances where there are dents in places there shouldn't be dents, like the hood of your car, like that pillow that you keep on pounding because you're so angry, you don't know why life has turned out this way. There are dents in places there shouldn't be dents. Or maybe it's apathy, that this chasm between what you expected life to be and the cards you've been dealt all of a sudden have left you numb toward God. You're tired of, of rehearsing the phrase, please, God. And so instead, you've said for maybe the final time, I'm done, God. I'm through. I don't know where you are or what you've been up to, but I'm, I'm done. You may be right there in that where your prayers have shifted all of a sudden because of this chasm between what you expected life to be and the cards you're actually dealing with. And so what do you do? What do you do when you're plagued with those sort of cards, when your life has been dealt that sort of hand? What do you do? What is the right response? Per the text, I just want us to feel that this might feel like something you can't accomplish today. And yet the challenge from the text is this. There is a people that for 400 years did not hear from God. Consider maybe that God had deserted them altogether because everything around is the lack of God's promises fulfilled. Everywhere they turn, turmoil, unrest, nothing is as it should be. And yet they keep coming back to the temple to pray. Zechariah, who for decade after decade said, please, God, what have I not done right? Why can't you grant us just one child so that my wife doesn't have to keep walking the streets of our neighborhood getting ridiculed and shamed each and every day? Why? And yet Zechariah still fulfills his duty. He still burns the candles. He still sacrifices. He still leads his people out in a song and in a prayer. And so the challenge for you and for me is when expectations don't meet your, your desires, or I'm sorry, when your realities don't meet your expectations, the, the challenge for us part of the text is remain a little longer. Choose to hope one more day. Because what we find in the text is that what, you, what we get to find on the other side of that choice, how God has worked historically, is that he loves to respond in ways that are unexpected. In ways that maybe you and I wouldn't have chosen, the timing that we wouldn't have predicted, and yet unexpected breakthrough often finds us on the other side of remaining just a little longer, of choosing to hope just for a little while longer. And so that's our role. In the sea of unmet expectations, in the deafening silence when our realities aren't what we want them to be, it's to remain just a little while longer for unexpected breakthrough. Look in the text with me where we can find how God has historically and even today operated this way. In Luke chapter 1, verse 11, it reads this, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, 
and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And hear this. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. Okay, so here we find ourselves in the story. The chasm, right, of expectations and reality for Zechariah. And what does he come to find? This one week of the year that he might get this opportunity once in a lifetime. What does he find? The archangel Gabriel. And what does he say? God has heard you, friend. You've been praying. He's heard you. The decades you've been praying for a child, God's heard you. The days that you've been praying here, right here, in the presence of the Lord, he's heard you. As you've been praying and pleading for blessing over this nation, God has heard you. Now, what's fascinating in this moment is Zachariah's response. You would think a guy who's in everything right, blameless and righteous before the Lord, who's been studying the Torah every single day, who's, who's read the story countless times of Abraham and Sarah, a couple advanced in years, barren, and God comes, he visits them with angelic figures and says, I've got good news for you. You've got a child coming. I've heard your prayers. And yet Zachariah in this moment doesn't say, "Woohoo! you heard me. I knew it. I knew you were that kind of God. That's not his response. What is it instead? It's, how can this be? That is, a, that is a nice way of saying that's impossible. That can't be. You see, what's happened to Zachariah's heart is that it's been hardened by his circumstances. He doesn't have ears to hear good news from an archangel sitting right next to the, the altar of incense. He can't hear it. He can't receive it. So his first question is, how? How is this possible? When we have been so weathered by our circumstances... And considering Zacharias, right, like you, you consider the national unrest and then just the personal experience of, of heartbreak year after year, decade after decade of no child in his home. He doesn't have the ears to hear God breaking through the silence, reminding him and reminding all of us, this is what God does. That if we're a people who, who cling to hope, who linger long enough, that it might not be in the way we chose, in the way we design, in the way that we want it, but God reminds all of us time and again, he is doing a thing that is bigger than you. He is doing a thing that goes far beyond your present desire and your present difficulty. And at the very same token, he is doing a thing that intimately includes you that lovingly tends to you, that reminds you that he sees you, that both can be true. And the people who get to experience that in the context of the scriptures are the ones, even when life hits them the hardest, they linger. They cling to hope. That they're the ones that get to experience unexpected 
breakthrough. And so then what is your role? What is your role when unexpected breakthrough occurs? Maybe that's the season you're in today. I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer all day. Like maybe um, this morning you're actually experiencing like, I, I'm actually on the other side of the heartache. God has responded and answered in ways that I couldn't have even dreamed that were possible. I wouldn't have chosen it, but God is working something in me, in my family, in my home, in my life. Unexpectedly, there's breakthrough. You want to know what your role is in that space, per the text? It's to be still. It's to be still. If you heard it earlier, there's three verses that I want to highlight here. There's, there's stillness that God forces, and then there's stillness that his people choose. And the invitation is to all of us, when there's unexpected breakthrough, be still. Zechariah is muted. <laughs> because of his disbelief, God says, you know what? Per my angel, you didn't believe this good news that I brought to your life, this breakthrough that was unexpected. You're going to be silent for over nine months. Sorry, my guy. And then the people, the people are tapping their toes. They're waiting. They've got things to get to. It's the morning prayer. Where is Zechariah? What's taking him so long? It's a forced stillness even for them. This, this waiting of we just want the blessing. We want the benediction. We want to go through our religious rehearsal of what we should do. And we want to go about our day. They too are forced to be still. And I love that in a beautiful spotlight. Here's Elizabeth. In many ways, like the prized person of this story, chooses stillness. For five months, she hides away. Because this good news is just too good for her heart to bear. She has to go. She has to ponder it with the Lord. She has to reflect deeply on it. She has to make sure that she knows that this is, this is a gift. And she wants to praise God in the secret place for it. She chooses Silence and stillness. And that's our role. If you're experiencing breakthrough today, like this is a season where your marriage is better than it's ever been, where you find you're experiencing some miracle in your life because you've tried and tried to be faithful, where answered prayer doesn't look like you, you wanted it to, but it's, it's answered prayer regardless of how you would have designed it. If you're there this morning, your role, your right response today is to go get quiet and go let God know that you are so, so grateful. And let that pondering do something to your heart. Because what it leads to, if we fast forward in the text, what it leads to is this. I love that it's reverse order because the Bible is wonderfully written. It's this beautiful narrative where it's Zechariah, the people, and Elizabeth all into stillness. And then we see the reverse ramifications. Look with me in verse 59 at Elizabeth. In verse 59, it says, And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, this is John being born, and they would have called him Zachariah after his father. But his mother answered, No. He shall be called John. We don't get a lot of words from Elizabeth. But when everybody, all the neighbors, all the extended family, they come, they're like, This is amazing. God has worked a miracle in your life. Zachariah Jr. in the mix. She says, With great conviction, No. My months of silence have taught me one thing. This child is consecrated to the Lord. He is his gift to me. I will name him what God has told me to name him. His name is John. The result of the stillness for Elizabeth is great and deep-seated conviction from God. 
she doesn't have the authority here to do what she just did. She doesn't have a voice in the matter. And what everyone is saying, no, 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 Zachariah Jr., am I right? She says, no. No. His name's John. And then we see the people's response. You see, they were forced into like the impatient stillness, like the tapping of the toes that they were doing, waiting for Zechariah. And now they're forced to another form of silence. They're shell-shocked. Hey, you can't do that. Elizabeth, you have no authority to do that. And they run to a, a mute husband and they say, what, do you, what have you got to say? And what it leads to, if we look further, in verse 65 to 66, the response of the people. Fear came on all their neighbors. All these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. The forced silence and stillness, even momentarily for these people, trying to communicate to a mute husband and father, their forced stillness has resulted in fear and wonder, awe. They don't know what to do with this. They're walking back from this home and not knowing what to do with this information other than they laid it up in their hearts. More time to reflect on who God is and what he's done. And finally, Zechariah. Zechariah has been forced to over nine months of you don't get to say anything. And finally, when he gets to talk, he has something worthy to say. Look with me in verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. See, Zechariah has been forced into stillness for several months. And in the moment that God opens up his mouth, filled with the spirit of the living God, he says this word. God keeps his promises. I had forgotten I was the man charged to go into the Holy of Holies, into the very heart of the presence of God, and an archangel met me and said, I've heard your prayers and I didn't believe God, but now I do. And now I've got something to say for everybody to hear. From, from, from Abraham to David, he's going to keep his promises. He's visited us. He's redeemed us. He's going to do it. And so I love that in the stillness, what we receive is something worthy to say back to God. For all the ways that your prayers have been broken and muddied, and you feel like, I can't really say that to God. I'm angry at God. I'm disappointed in God. He works all of those into his grand plan for your story. And one day you will, in the stillness, have something to say back to God that is worshipful, filled with the Spirit that prophesies, that speaks a truth over you, over who God is and what he's done and how you fit beautifully into his story that he's writing for you. That's what we get when we enter into the stillness. And so if you're experiencing some sort of breakthrough this morning from the Lord, 
my invitation to you is to be still. And allow me to read just a few verses from Psalm 46 because I think it helps us couch and hopefully apply the implications of stillness for us. So Psalm 46, it reads this, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear, burns a chariot with fire. Verse 10, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. This psalm was written to be sung by the people of God when your circumstances go off the rails. When you don't believe that God hears your prayers, when you feel like everything has been upended, expectations here, reality way down here, And you have one role to play in the midst of this psalm. To believe that God is, in fact, a refuge. To believe that he's a very present help in trouble. And to be still. To know that he is your God. And that all of a sudden in that space, what we recognize from this psalm and what we recognize in Luke chapter 1 is this. God, who is so committed to his glory above all else, his exaltation goes hand in hand with him being our refuge. The two are, are intimately linked. Do you hear it in this song? He is so committed to his exaltation, and that means he is so committed to being a very present help when you are in trouble, a refuge for you when you need him to be. So all we have to do is experience it and then be still about it. God is really committed to that. So get quiet get alone, reflect on what he's done, relish in his character when unexpected breakthrough happens in your story. And all of a sudden, what we come to find in Luke chapter one is that the stage is set. The stage is set. The whole story has been leading up to this moment, this climactic moment. Zachariah says this in Luke chapter 1, verse 76. He looks at his child. Nine months of silence, he looks at his new boy and he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew, became strong in spirit, and he, he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. 
Again, the whole story has been building to this climactic moment. Here it comes, the child. This miraculous child. And what do we find? He is the guy before the guy. Right, like that, that's the culmination of this moment. He is the child before the child that we've been waiting for. All of this buildup, Luke gives so many verses to John the Baptist's birth story. And what do we find at the climax of his birth? Zachariah's prophecy over his son's life. You are the guy before the guy. That's your story. John the Baptist's entire life, his identity, is rooted in the life and the identity of another. His life and his identity is rooted in the life and the identity of another, the one that we've actually been waiting for. If we were to study the story of John's life through the Gospel of Luke, we come to find that he creates quite a stir. People are flocking to him left and right. He has tons of influence, and he's baptizing people in water. And when people say, well, what are you doing here? He says, for the forgiveness of sins, be baptized in this water. But I need you all to know, every single time we do this baptism thing, there's one coming who will baptize with the Spirit and with fire. This water is fine. It's warm enough for you to come into. But there is one coming soon who will baptize you with the Spirit of God and with fire. John can't help himself. He can't do anything without talking about the one he is rooted in, the one that we've all been waiting for. He'll say things like, that guy's sandals, I'm not worthy to untie those sandals. When he's in prison, when all of a sudden his life is asunder, when he doesn't know what direction is up and down and left and right, what does he say to his disciples? I must decrease and he must increase. My life is rooted in his. You see, John's role was to have a people prepared for the star of the show. In many ways, John the Baptist is an officiant at a wedding. Nobody's really here for you, my guy. Your story's fine. Your words are nice. Well, not, not nice, but convicting. But we're all waiting for the one we've come to see. John the Baptist is getting our attention. He's setting the stage for the one we need. I try to think of the best way to illustrate this to you, and I can't do it better than a small clip from A Knight's Tale. So we're going to watch this clip. And so, without further gilding the lily, and with no more ado, I give to you the seeker of serenity, the protector of Italian virginity, the enforcer of our Lord God, the one, the only, Sir Ulrich von Lichtenstein! It's a masterpiece. Um, I wish I could show you the whole clip. There's, it's like a minute 30 long where I was like, this is, I can't drag this on too much. He, Jeffrey Chaucer is his name in the story. He is William Thatcher, Heath Ledger, uh, his like hype man, right? Like, he's like the announcer. He's the one that sets the stage for everybody to, some people are cheering their heads up. They can't wait to see this night, this, this one that they've been waiting for after all these flowery words there's some people who are scratching their heads of like who is this guy what he's doing though is setting the stage for the one that we actually came to see and i didn't get to show you the clip because it's too long but if you were to watch a night's tale later tonight which i highly recommend he goes up to william thatcher and this is what he says 
I got their attention. Now you go win their hearts. And I feel as though that, that is, if there was a quote to summarize John the Baptist's life, that's it right there, a knight's tale. Jesus, I got their attention. Now you go win their hearts. John did a great job of making sure people knew that the stage was set. He was the promised one from Malachi 4 in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He's going to invite people to a repentance, to be, to be washed by water for the forgiveness of their sins. Do you realize you are broken? You need God. I'm setting the stage, and here he comes. Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Now, John the Baptist John the Baptist has a role to play. And that role is the same one that you and I get to be invited into today. If you are here for Jesus, you're here to see him, to hear him, to love him and be loved by him. I need you to know you get to be his Jeffrey Chaucer. You get to go into the spaces and the stories of your days. And you get to tell a story you get to increase the anticipation. You get to gain the attention of people to say, oh, but there's one coming and he gets to win your heart. Like my prayer for you today in sitting with this text, this longing that I've had for you is that, is that if you know Jesus intimately, if you've enjoyed him deeply, if you, if you believe this morning that 2,000 years ago he took on flesh, to make sure that you knew there is no chasm big enough that he's not willing to go to come after you. If you're here this morning and you believe in your heart that he lived a perfectly righteous life and yet he was willing to die the most shameful and painful death so that you would never have to. That the very people he came to to rescue are the same ones that are spitting on him, shouting, mocking, scorns at his name demanding that he rescue himself if he's going to rescue them. The very one that became sin on your behalf. He didn't just die for your sin. The scriptures say that he became your sin so that he could bury it in a grave. If you're here this morning and you love this Jesus, the risen king who right now at the right hand of the Father is whispering prayers on your behalf, if you love this Jesus, you have a role to play in his story. You get to go to your friends that are coming to you with all of their difficulty and their heartache, and they're looking at you to save them a little bit, to maybe have the right words to say, to free them from this abyss of sadness. You know what you get to do? You get to listen all the way down to the bottom. You get to understand their heart deeply, to cry with them and weep with them. And then you get to point the finger at the one who can actually rescue them. The one that can actually save them. The one who knows all the way to the bottom exactly how it feels to be totally abandoned, to feel totally sorrowful, to have no hope. Right? Like all, all of a sudden, there is one who can empathize fully, and it's not you, it's him. You can't breathe words of life into the decay of disbelief. You can't. But there is one who can. You are not the Christ. You are not him. But you 
get to love people well enough, long enough to get their attention and to fix their gaze on the one that is the hero of their story. And you get to run to Jesus later that day after you've met with those friends and you get to say, Jesus, I got their attention. You go win their heart. That's the role that you and I get to play today. If you are here for Jesus, you have that role to play. Will you play it? Will you fulfill it? If you bow your heads with me as we pray. So Father God, we, we thank you that today is a day with great rejoicing that we get to see you, Jesus, just a little more clearly. And in seeing you, the ways that you have worked in history, the ways that you have been kind, even the spaces that we feel you have been distant and far, how you have proven time again in Scripture, but even in our story, God, you love unexpectedly to to break the silence, to speak a better word, to meet us in our hour of greatest need. Jesus, you have proven it time and again, most pointedly in the ways that you have come for us, the ways that you have died for us. And so help us not be a people who forget so quickly. Help our hardened hearts be softened today. Help us believe, Jesus, that you see us and that you're pursuing us even now. And in response to that, God, help us be sure to point the finger at the one who can save, the hero of the story. Jesus, you are worthy of that. And so win our hearts today and win the hearts of those in our lives. We ask it in the powerful and the mattress name of Jesus. Amen.